well that was done. also so yesterday <laughs> according to my daughter it's like you missed the time when you could say woke and not have people laugh at you so. oh really god woke. i just yeah. learned woke like two weeks Shoot. ago Shoot. <laughs> you embody woke <laughs> you don't oh, have to yeah. learn it oh, you yeah. just are woke so <laughs> all right ready Okay. Yeah. All right. Wow. All right. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton along with Dr. Brian Goff. Hello. Hi, Brian. And Hi, Dr. Sheila. Jenna Lejeune. Good morning. This is a program for people who want to explore our interior worlds. And of course, we all here believe that we're all on a spectrum of mental health. And every one of us are going to need help at some point in our lives. So let's take the shame out of asking for help. I'm so happy to uh, to finally meet Liz Scott. I've heard about Liz Scott for a long time. What a phenomenal writer you are, and you're a trained psychologist, and you have these two lovely kids. But your memoir, uh, This Never Happened, is the reason I pulled you in, because I want to talk about narcissism. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so you claim that both of your parents are narcissists. Did you know that growing up, or did you just think, my God, they're strange? <laughs> Oh, I didn't have that kind of language when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, I, I, it, it was um, extremely clear that they were very strange. Everybody knew they were very strange. And um, uh, my father left our family when I was about 10. So I only had a kind of um, fantasy vision of him that I'd created in my own mind to take care of myself. Yeah. Um, so he kind of got off a little scot-free until later when I met him. Yeah. <laughs> And with my mother, it was she was so exasperating and strange and eccentric that I really distanced myself from her. Yeah, and kind of um, uh, stuck with my best friend. We kind of grew each other up. Yeah, we stuck. We were a melded unit. We yeah. both had really fucked up families, so yeah. we, uh, yeah, we were really distanced ourselves. Uh, um, because narcissism, especially in pop culture, has become so overused, can we talk just a little bit about what is narcissism and when is it actually a problem? Well, I, I imagine having a parent who is a narcissist is the worst thing in the world because you don't get the care that you need. But what is narcissism? How do you define it? Well, I mean, I do have the DSM-5 you know, criteria in my book <laughs> listed. Yeah. Um, the, the I, I guess one of the central f features is that other people don't really exist except to the extent that they reflect on the that the narcissist. And so, um, I mean, I, I think now I can say it comes from a deep sense of emptiness and, um, you know, lack of sense of self. Right. But um, it's just this extreme self-centeredness. Everything is about them. Everything is about... Um, how a child is only valuable if they reflect well on the child and the parent. Oh, yeah, that that in and mm -hmm. of itself, that line alone is so painful. Mm -hmm. So there are some of the scenes in the in your book that made me just so, first of all, so compassionate for you as a kid, but also just thinking, wow, if you ever needed an, an example of how damaging narcissism can be, this one is it. First of all, the fact that your mother denied your existence as a Jewish person. Oh, my goodness. That was really something. Um, we never met any relatives at all. And uh, I remember a couple of times when I was young asking my mother if she had any brothers or sisters, and she said, I don't remember. And my sister and I tried every single solitary way we could to try to get some information on our family with no luck whatsoever. And um, so 
we later found out when we were adults that she is actually the was the youngest of I think eight or nine kids that she emigrated to the United States probably when she was earlier than younger than ten. Um, that on her side we are from a family of an unbroken chain, well unbroken. At that point, it's broken now, but an unbroken chain of rabbis dating back to, they traced it back to King David, and wow. you know, to some account. So, but none of that was, we were not aware of any of that. It also really just stopped me in my track um, when you described the shopping trip where <laughs> your mom actually steals in front of you. Oh, she was just so ballsy. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was, it was just, it was just astonishing. I mean, it, similarly, I mean, this is a sort of a different way of saying that, but she would charge to the front of any line. You know, lines meant nothing to her. She just felt entitled to be at the front of the line. She felt entitled to take what she wanted to take. And, you know, if I would say anything to her, she'd say, well, you know, I'll return it, which she might do saying that somebody gave it to her as a gift and she'd take a credit. Wow. <laughs> and then mm. finally, um, the, the other scene that really just got under my skin was you're with a friend who is close to your age <laughs> and the friend or the mother asks what her age is and then she says something like 35 and your mother says, oh, me too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, no, if it weren't so painful, it's kind of laughable. It, you have to say, right? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. It's just nonsensical. It's unbelievable. And it, it does feel like I don't exist in that moment. You know, uh -huh. I do not exist because, like, you, do you know I can hear you? Right. Do, mm -hmm. do you know you said that? And I know how to do math? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, before we go on to the father, um, <laughs> uh, some of these, so, so these are great scenes that sort of present this type of a person who really doesn't have a regard for other human beings, even their own offspring. D talk about narcissism, Jenna, if you would, and tell me, like, how does it show up? And is this kind of a, almost a common presentation, even though it seems so outrageous in this book? Yeah, I think of narcissism as being just a, a really profound inability to take perspective of the other. It, it's like there, there's only this ability to take your own perspective and then you put that on the other. And then when the other person or the outside world gives contradictory information or a contradictory perspective, it's so confusing that you just have to sort of deny it or push it away or twist it in your head to make it reflect your own perspective. So that's how I understand narcissism, that it's, it's just and, you know, all of from my perspective, all of these things are on a continuum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like Liz, your mom was uh, kind of this very far end of the continuum. And the the line example is a beautiful one. It probably isn't even that your mom is sitting there thinking, well, I don't care. I'm going to go in front of the line. It's just it's not even on her radar. Exactly. There isn't the perspective that there are other human beings who have waited in line who may also want to be at the front of the line. Precisely. Yeah. Liz has this. Oh, go ahead. Oh, Brian. I was just going to say that I a, a while back I stumbled across this word called uh, I think the word is sonder, and uh, it's not in the dictionary, but one of these days it will be. And it's but it's used, and it refers to that um, that moment where you become aware that other people, including strangers, 
are the center of their story and have this complete rich history and hopes and dreams and struggles and experience and perspectives just like yours and that we're full of this life of souls, right? Where everyone is the center of their own journey and their own story. And it feels like this lack of awareness of, of other mm. is the extreme opposite where the only story is my story and everybody is an extra and they almost don't even get lines in my movie. But, but what I would say, and I think Brian, you probably agree with that. I don't think that it is this magical moment that happens for people. This is a skill that we learn that mm. this is what parents do to help their kids learn this process of being able first to take their own perspective and when you can take your own you can see that there's an other there yes. and that's, that's like this ongoing developmental process that comes on board with language and something happened there for your mom my guess is that that either didn't happen for her or it got severely interrupted mm. and she let go of that so Rather than it being kind of this one particular aha moment that happens for kids, certainly there is that sort of sense, but this is a, 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 an ongoing developmental skill that we teach our kids through language or hopefully teach our kids mm -hmm. through our ability to use language. There's something that you write um, in your book that I found so beautiful when you say there's these two parables, the world is made for you, and you are but a speck of dust in the universe. And I was curious if in being raised by a person who the world is made for me, it almost you default to that p position of you are but a speck of dust. It, is that part of the dynamic of growing up with someone who is so consumed with themselves and their own world? Uh, uh, definitely. I, one of the chapters in the book is, um, I think it's called Some Things That Are Hard For children of narcissists. Uh. And one of them, for example, is writing a memoir because th that it implies that I'm worth the ink. <laughs> right. You know, I'm worth the story to tell. And um, it, it's, uh, I have really um, struggled with finding a place of healthy narcissism, which I think we all need to find. Sure. And, and, and so I think if we can hold both of those that I am, the, this, the universe was made for me, and I am mm -hmm. a speck of dust in the universe. If I can hold both of those at the same time, I think that's a healthy place for me. I, uh, my belief is that at root, my mother probably felt like she was a speck of dust, mm. and that narcissism is a coping defense, extreme defense mechanism against that. Brian, I saw you nodding your head when she said that. Why? Yeah, I, I love this idea that, y you know, my experience is valid. My experience is worth noting. Are we uh -oh. having? We're having a lot of gremlins today. Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. Jeez. This is still going. All right. Okay. I just heard it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Crackle. So crackle, crackle. I'm going to just not note these where they are so All that right. I know. But just thinking that, should I, should I continue here? Yes. Start your sentence over. All right. Uh, yeah, no, I really like that. This idea that my experience is is valid. It is as valid as anybody else's experience. It's worth my attention. And I am part of something bigger than me. And I have these moments where um, I don't stand in judgment 
of my own thoughts, my own feelings, my own perspective. But then I have these moments right alongside of it where the universe seems really, really big mm. and I seem really small, but I am part of it. Yeah. Right? Exactly. That, that both of those moments are, I think, are really beautiful. Right. Mm. I, I do love too. that so much. Um, I want to go back to your dad because I think that it's so painful first, especially a, a female relationship with mother is so fractured. Then your dad leaves and you attempt to, to find him again in New York and you have this beautiful exchange of letters. And then describe what happened when you actually make that trip into the city. It, it's a devastating, devastating part of the book. It was pretty devastating. Um, it was the only chapter in the book I wrote in second person because it was a little too painful to write in first person. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I think I was probably, he, he left home, left us when I was about 10, I think, or 11. And I, uh, he asked me to come into the city. We were living right outside New York City. And he asked me to come into the city to meet him for lunch. We were going to have lunch and go ice skating at Rockefeller Center. So I took the train for the first time in my life. I took the train by myself. And um, he met me at Grand Central. And we took a taxi to uh, the restaurant at uh, Rockefeller Center where he told me that it was too painful for him to see me anymore and that you know i he he, he didn't mean to understand that and because i had um you know let me sidebar here i think it's too scary for kids to have two crazy parents mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I made him into the the my hero mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. Um, and since he was gone, it was easier to do that, to kind of create a, a vision of somebody that was my savior. And um, so I left that. I don't remember the train ride back, which I guess is not surprising because I was probably in shock. Right. Um, but even for years after that, my the way I thought about that was, oh, poor dad. So mm -hmm. hard for him. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry this is so hard for him. I want to know where that um, it, misplaced sense of compassion comes from, because obviously that compassion should have been for yourself, right? Yes. And when it was that you were finally able to access rage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think of it now not so much as compassion as it was kind of saving my image of him as a somebody that I could rely on or oh. somebody that wasn't crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, we, my sister found him when we were in our 30s. I already had two small children, and I flew out to, I was living in Cleveland at the time, and I flew out to New York to spend the afternoon with him. Uh, he was living with a woman about my age, and um, uh, <laughs> he seemed happy to see me, kind of like if you saw somebody that you went to college with and hadn't seen in a while. Hmm. Um, and we sat at his kitchen table and we talked about Stupid crap, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, went back to the airport, flew home. Still, I was still kind of in shock. And then uh, a few weeks later, he was going to take a road trip and asked if he could stop at my place overnight and incidentally meet my children, a.k.a. his grandchildren, mm -hmm. since he was going to be passing through anyway. And um, he, again, he sat down, started babbling about stupid crap, you know, just dumb stuff. And I finally just couldn't take it. And I said, you know, I, I can't do this. I need you to tell me why. And he exploded. He said, I don't know you and your fucking mother, any explanations and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I asked him to leave. And that was 
That the last, that. That's mm. the last time you ever saw your that father. That's the last time I saw him. So, um, Jenna, I want to uh, talk about, I think for especially adults who've had really rocky relationships with their parents, there's always this attempt as an adult to repair. And when it doesn't work out, where do we put that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the repair attempt isn't actually with our parents. We try and repair with, you know, our partners or our friends or that sort of stuff. But I agree that kind of we're often in this place to heal the wound, however that can happen. And so... You know, hopefully, again, that pl- that starts with you and healing your own hurt and and suffering that the young girl that you were who experienced all of that w- went through, um, and then seeing how that can impact your adult relationships as well. You know, you if you're going into a relationship with this story about relationships that one person, the whole entire universe has been created for them, and the other person in the relationship is a speck of dust, well, that might be problematic in your adult relationships if that's not how you want to roll in the world. Uh, Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder if some of the repair is, um, like, I have been this speck of dust, and, and as I see it, I think growing up that way, your thoughts your feelings, your perspective, your existence was not validated, right? I think invalidation comes in all sorts of forms. Sometimes it's really intense. It's abuse directly. And sometimes it's the absence, the absence of attention. The parent's life is too chaotic. Their own uh, internal struggles, the substance abuse, uh, incarceration, whatever, like their life is so chaotic that they can't attend to you. But however that plays out, your experience gets invalidated. Um, and then that invalidation uh, from the parent gets internalized, and now it's self-invalidation, right? Not, not just you see me as a speck of dust, but I am a speck of dust. And I think going back and doing some of that repair is saying, I want to try to connect with you, but out of a place of self-validation. Like, mm. this was my experience. This is how it felt. I am not this tiny little speck of dust. And I want to relate to you as this full person. And I think when it goes poorly, it's when the parent refuses to see you yeah, that way. Yeah, they can't hear it. Definitely. I was just mm-hmm. talking with some friends this weekend. We were hiking, and my friend is going back to her home in Ireland. And she she was funny that we were talking in preparation for your thing. And she said, yeah, I grew up with narcissistic parents. Let me tell you, they don't want to hear you tell them that you didn't have a good experience growing up. It's like the hardest thing for them. And so that immediately puts you back in this almost, she says, I open the refrigerator and I feel like I'm 15 again, you know? Which is strange because growing up, it doesn't seem like you're very important as a child and you're not, except that your experience of a child reflects on their, uh, doing the parent role. Oh, well, right. Right. Yeah. And so, so they want to be told they were great. Right. It isn't yeah. like such a disappointment that you had, <laughs> so you had a bad experience. It's that you're saying that they did a bad job. Totally. Yeah. Because you are the mirror. You are uh, the mirror. You are right. the mirror. You right. also said something about um, gaslighting, that it, that you become really accustomed to it. And so that when it happens again, like say in politics, you become really triggered by it. What do you mean by I, that? I am really triggered by it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I know as a therapist all along, I knew that 
that um, there's no way I'd be a good therapist for anybody that was even on that spectrum of narcissistic personality disorder. That just, I, I would not be good. But but explain gaslighting and how it yeah. worked in your family dynamic. Give me an example. Yeah. Um, so... Um, this is, I think this is related. So I, I um, had the chance to, I was invited to go to the Oscars several years ago, which was amazing yeah. because I'm a total movie slut. <laughs> total. <laughs> and um, this was years before, yeah, several years, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And um, I'm getting ready to walk out the door it, 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 to the, go to the theater. I'm all dressed and I get a telephone call. Your mother's in the hospital. She's doing terribly she's calling for you she's about to die you got to get down to you got to get up to san francisco ah. so i jump in a cab get, go to the airport get to san francisco run down the hall she's in her room watching the oscars i walk in and she says i just saw you on the red carpet I said, well, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Actually, no, I didn't, you didn't. I didn't really. I, I'll, I'll tell you, people use gaslighting in such different ways that I've really never quite understood the exact definition. Yeah, it's not, that's not a precisely great example of yeah. it. Did you see the old Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer movie about gaslight? That no. Was, it's called Gaslight? No. It's, that, well, that will explain it to you perfectly. Okay. It's, it makes you feel like you're crazy. Oh, okay. It's somebody sort of going uh, deliberately, actually, trying to make you feel crazy. So you can't trust your own judgment. You can't trust your own perceptions. And so they and they hold themselves up as the barometer of mm -hmm. what is right. sane. Yes. Wow. Your but experience, that, your perspective is wrong. Right. Exactly. Wow. And and there's something wrong with you for having your experience or your emotional reaction. Yes. Wow. But that would be really common if you grew up with a parent who didn't do the. Um, appropriate or helpful mirroring that parents need to do to help kids develop a sense of self. It's uh, our sense of self is something that we developed prim primarily through having other people, our parents mirror back to us. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're Jenna. Yes, you are. Oh, you like pizza. Yes, I do like yeah. pizza. And if mm -hmm. you don't have a parent who is mirroring back accurately you, but rather they're mirroring themselves, then you're going to be in this place of having a very confused sense of self, which happens to so many of us. And then the gaslighting thing just adds, excuse the pun, fuel to the fire wow. on, on mm -hmm. that. It's fascinating because you say something in the book that really struck me that that the gaze, the mother gaze yes. that a, an infant um, identifies with to see, oh, mommy is looking at me. I am a person. I'm a self. And look, when she moves over there, her eyes are still on me. And that in many cases with narcissism, that's lacking because they're somewhere else. They're, they're not else. really paying attention to you at all. So I, I was thinking about the implications on the brain, just the, the circuitry that comes down because we feel seen and safe is probably lacking as well as well. So when, when you came today and you were like, I'm really, I, I get very nervous about being late. And I was like, <laughs> I'll bet you get nervous about a lot of things because you don't have a calm existence in many ways if you haven't been loved, bonded, comforted, mothered. I think that um, all the research about um, this, uh, the mother's gaze and how important that is, is, is uh, uh, talks about how important that is to develop a secure sense of self, a reliable mm -hmm. sense of self. Yeah. And um, I'm, a, I'm a late bloomer. 
oh, well, in that regard. Yeah, mm. well, so many people uh, are. Yeah, I am really a late bloomer. I do want to just close by asking you what you do now to stay well. Obviously, <laughs> your interest in psychology, part of it had to have been your attempt to understand yourself and develop a, a better self-help way of being in the world, right? Isn't that true for all of us, other psychologists <laughs> in the room? <laughs> Indeed it is. Yeah. If you're not doing it, you're not doing a very good job. Right. Yeah, right. I, I, totally, yeah. totally. And um, yeah, I, I, I uh, that, um, the mysteries of my family and the way my mother just lied with impunity has made me just kind of dedicated to the truth and to exploration mm. and to be shameless in my mm. excavation of myself. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what also really struck me, Liz, part of your generosity and the way you are in the world is because you had such an effed up parent. Mm-hmm. I mean, both. Yeah. Um, the thing that you do where under your bed, you have <laughs> all of your files with all of the ages, with all of the family history, with everything you've provided for context for your own children is in some ways repairing that fracture that happened in your. And I think there's something so unbelievably hopeful in that. I'm trying. I'm really trying. I'm trying not to be her. And that's the really, like, the bright side of this story. If our sense of self is something that we kind of learn or that you didn't get to learn growing up, mm-hmm. it also means it's something now we can learn as mm-hmm. adults. Like this idea that attachment and our sense of kind of a secure sense of self is done when we're like little kids is just, we just know that isn't the case. But you got to do a little, you, you have to do your own work then as an adult. And it really sounds like you've been willing to do that and break that cycle. Yeah. Okay. Such a good point. It's like learning a language when you didn't grow up by Exactly, language. Brian. Definitely. It's harder, yeah. but it can exactly. be done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Two new languages. Thanks, yeah. Liz Scott. Again, the memoir is called This Never Happened. Thank you so much, Sheila. So woke. That was so woke. <laughs> 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 <laughs>